Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Audio bandwidth for Security Now is provided by AOL Music and Spinner.com, where you can get free MP3s, exclusive interviews, and more. Video bandwidth for Security Now is provided by CashFly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson. Episode 249, recorded May 20th, 2010. Your questions, Steve's answers, number 92. Security Now is brought to you by GoToMeeting. Business travel can kill your company's profits, so do more, save more, and travel less with GoToMeeting. For your free 30-day trial, visit GoToMeeting.com slash SecurityNow. And by Carpenter, the leader in online backup. Back up your PC or Mac off-site securely and automatically. For a free trial offer, plus two free months with purchase, go to Carbonite.com. Offer code security now. It's time for security now, the show that covers your security now. <laughs> Privacy, too, with the guru of security, the man who started uh, GRC.com, the Gibson Research Corporation, originally as a way uh, to sell uh, his one and only software product, Spinrite. But it's become a huge resource for anybody interested in security between the podcasts, of which there are now 249, uh, but also uh, the software that he gives away. The man who discovered the first spyware, wrote the first anti-spyware program, even coined the term spyware, Steve Gibson. It's great to see you again. Well, Leo, we set a pretty high bar for ourselves last week. I should add to your credits, the man who created the portable dog. I don't want to say killer because no dogs were harmed. No dogs were harmed. And and it's unfortunate that that's what, and I, when I was 16 years old, that's what I named the thing. And I considered, you know, fudging that for our audience and calling it the portable dog trainer. But I thought, well, maybe I'll be forgiven and understood that, you know, I was 16. But We should yeah, call it the got- portable principal stunner. <laughs> <laughs> Vice would- principal Archibald. Yeah. Did you, have you heard from Vice principal Archibald? Cause I, would I think- actually wondered maybe if it would filter out to him. Um, I haven't heard anything uh, from him as a result of this. It, it could happen. He's probably still alive and kicking somewhere. If you have not listened to episode 248 of Security Now, you may pause this one. <laughs> And go back and listen. Not that you'll need to for anything we talk about today, but it's just such a fun episode. And with an important moral, uh, which is that you've got to encourage kids to create, to make, not to sit passively and consume, but to create. And thank goodness we live in an era where the tools for creation, whether it's software programming, hardware hacking, are are just everywhere. We've got uh, a listener in the studio, Doc, is in town for the Maker Fair, which is coming up this weekend in uh, San Mateo, California, which is all about people making cool stuff. And I think that, I, that, that that movement is alive and well. It's interesting, too. I mean, the fact that there is such a thing as a Maker Fair, that they're scattered around the country, that there's a magazine, Make, that supports it. I mean, that that sort of says that there's something special about making stuff. Yes. I mean, it's, it's not nothing. Yes. So um, I decided that we really needed to do a Q&A. So because it had been now several weeks since we've heard questions from our listeners, the mailbag uh, incoming is full of really good stuff. So I didn't want to skip that 
um, which was regularly scheduled for last week, which I, you know, we did the the special episode 248, sort of in commemoration of the 50th anniversary of the invention of the laser. So I thought, okay, well, we'll we'll change the parity of our Q&A and non-Q&A episodes uh, by not skipping one, but, but just pushing it down a bit. So that's what we have for today is um, nine questions, um, some short, some long, some discussion, tons of security-related stuff to talk about. So I think we've got a really great podcast to follow it's okay. Nothing will be as great as 248, but <laughs> but we'll do the best we can. It will be content-rich, and it will cover security this time. Which Indeed. Is, so let's start with the security updates, and we'll get... Uh, well, okay, I'll tell you what. I'm going to get a commercial in now. Yep. We have two today, and uh, I'll get one in now, and we'll get one in then before your Q&A begins. Because um, we do want to really make sure that you hear the commercials, because that's what makes this possible. That's what pays uh, for all the gear, the equipment, the staff... Get Steve a little check every week. The ever-growing staff. The ever-growing, yeah. We just hired uh, Sarah Lane is now joining us. Tom Merritt joins us June 1st. Colleen has been uh, has left. She went to Google. I'm very proud of her for, for that. But Ken Shepardson has joined us as our uh, VP Engineering. We've, uh, we, you know, for a long time, John Slanina, Jammer B, uh, has been here on the weekends helping me out for a, a really a, literally a stipend. Uh, we've hired him. He's gone on staff as our studio manager. So we have, yeah, you're right. <laughs> Maybe I better do two commercials. <laughs> no, we'll never do more than one and a half an hour. That's just, that's my pledge to you. But I do want to mention our great friends at Citrix who have really, I think they, they represent more than half of our operating budget. They do such a great product. We're really happy to have them on the show and they want us to mention go to meeting today and I'm glad to do it. Uh, business travel, as you well know, is, is not merely stressful and time consuming, is expensive we have to be very careful about the business travel we do, but we use GoToMeeting all the time, especially now that they have an iPad, free iPad application. means I can meet anywhere I can get Internet access. They've got VoIP built in, so I just plug in some a headset, and I'm, I'm heard, I'm listening to the meeting, and I'm watching it on my iPad. That is so cool. Save time, save money. Don't, don't break your bank traveling around meeting clients and colleagues. Yes, sometimes you need to press the flesh, but a lot of times... You can use GoToMeeting and hold those meetings online. And I'll tell you, a GoToMeeting meeting is very engaging for sales presentations, product demos, for training sessions, collaborating on documents, any kind of conference call. It just brings it to life. It makes it more visual. Now, you don't need an iPad to use it. Of course, it works on Windows. It works on Macs. It works anywhere you can get online. All you have to do if you want to hold a meeting is you can, while you're on the phone, send out a link or if you're in email, uh, before the meeting, you send out a special email that says you're invited to this meeting. Click this link. Even if the client doesn't have GoToMeeting installed, and this is really important, you'll be able to put you'll be able to put uh, that you know get them on that meeting within a few seconds. They just click the link. It's just a little tiny bit of I think it's Java code that downloads, and boom, now they're seeing your screen. They're seeing your PowerPoint or keynote presentation. They're seeing the spreadsheets and the slides. They're engaged. They're with you. You're on the same page. And you didn't have to spend all that money to travel. GoToMeeting is very affordable. I think it's $49 a month for unlimited meetings as long as you want, as often as you want. Compare that to one business trip. And you know, even a business trip across town, it costs more than that. Especially if you buy the guy lunch. You don't have to buy him lunch with GoToMeeting. Try it free for the next 30 days. You'll see what I mean. GoToMeeting.com slash security now. G-O-T-O meeting.com slash security now. And thank you, Citrix, and GoToMeeting for your support for security now. They make all the dog stories possible. 
So item one in our security news. Uh, Adobe, speaking of dog stories, Adobe in the dog house. Again? Once, yes, once it's, again. It's just, this sounds like uh, a broken record at this point. It's, well, I would say it's shocking, but the problem is with shockwave. Um, the good news is... That's not widely used, really, is it? Exactly. That's yeah. the good news, is that it is sort of their more powerful platform. It's more expensive to develop for. You need about a $1,000 designer program in order to create it. There aren't lots of third-party, but there may not be any third-party support for, like, alternative design platforms. Um, so, once again, this is a problem with Adobe Shockwave, not Flash. Now, last time we had major problems with Shockwave, my advice to our listeners was just uninstall it. Right. If you happen to have installed it by mistake or sometime in the past, it's it's likely that you don't need it. So... Hopefully, you'll know if you do need it. Certainly, you know, a given corporation might have standardized on it. It might be something you have no choice to use. In any event, you could certainly upgrade to the latest. Am I reading this right? There are 11 problems? Yes. And I wanted to just run through these to give our listeners a a sense of how relatively horrifying these are. Um, uh, SANS put together in their most recent security vulnerability alert a a sort of a, a summary. This is available on Adobe's site. It's available from the third-party site. But I wanted to just quote from what Sands wrote because they sort of turned it into English in a nice fashion. Uh, the first issue is caused by a boundary error while processing Shockwave 3D block, which is one of the, the block formats in a Shockwave file. The second issue is a memory corruption vulnerability caused by a signedness error while processing malicious Shockwave files. The third issue is a memory corruption vulnerability caused by an array indexing error while processing malicious shockwave files. The fourth issue is caused by an integer overflow error while processing malicious shockwave files. The fifth issue is a memory corruption vulnerability caused by an error while processing asset entries. The sixth issue is caused by a buffer overflow error while processing embedded fonts. The seventh is the seventh problem is caused by a boundary error while parsing director files. The eighth problem is a memory corruption vulnerability caused by an error while processing four-byte field with AA four-byte field within record type FFFFF49 within the 3D objects defined inside director files. The ninth issue is caused when an application encounters signed values while parsing PAMI RIF RIFF chunks. PAMI RIF? <laughs> oh, you know her? Oh, yeah. Um, Went to high school issue, with her, I think. The tenth issue is caused by an error while processing director files during a memory dereference. We know about what de- memory dereferences are now from talking about pointers in our Fundamentals of Computer Technology series. The eleventh issue is caused by a signedness error while processing director files. And as if that wasn't enough, there are more unspecified errors which can be exploited to cause memory corruption. In other words, just don't use this. <laughs> it's stunning that there are this many errors. I, I, I don't understand. <laughs> I know. It's, and these are, are they kind of related or they, it seems like they're all different they're all parts very of the different. code? They're all very different. At the bottom of, of, of Adobe's page announcing the update past, okay, uh, past this 
vulnerable and prior on both Windows and Mac, by the way, they have a list of thanks to all the various people that have brought these to their attention. So, in <laughs> fairness, these have been accumulating. It's a roll-up. Okay. Yes. Okay. These have been accumulating for a while from, from various sources. So, this is their fix. So, these vulnerabilities exist in version 11.5.6.606. Now, what's important is that this is not flash. This is shockwave. So... The the problem is there's some, and we've talked about this before, some jargon confusion because, for example, my Flash plugins in both Firefox and IE describe themselves as Shockwave Flash. So that's not the problem. And those are back at version 10-something. Um, it's If it just says Shockwave or Shockwave Player, then that's what you're looking for. But... I wanted to also remind our listeners of a cool service that Mozilla is now offering, but also a major news announcement about that. Mozilla has something that we've talked about before called the plug-in check for Firefox, where if you simply, in Firefox, you go to mozilla.com slash plug-in check, That's all great. run together, P-L-U-G-I-N-C-H-E-C-K, um, and you do need to... From a scripting standpoint, trust Mozilla.com. So if you're using NoScript, you need to enable that. That's why it didn't work for me initially until I said, oh, yeah, I could got to turn scripting on. Then it worked. And it will, it's a, just a beautiful facility they're offering to enumerate the plugins in Firefox and tell you how you're doing. Well, when I did that this morning in prepping this, I realized, oh, I was fine, except I needed to update my. <laughs> Acrobat Reader plug-in, which I did, and then everything was okay. The big news is they've decided to expand this service beyond Firefox, which is so cool. They're now offering it for not only Firefox, but Safari, Chrome, Opera, and IE. Wow. So, yes. So Safari users, Chrome users, and IE, you can use, if you go, for example, and I did it this morning when I ran across this, you go to, using IE, you go to mozilla.com slash plugin check. It works. It works in Internet Explorer. And it will, it's a little oh, less extensive. so great. Isn't this neat? Um, it's a little bit less extensive in IE. And they explain that the reason is that IE's technology requires much more work from them, sort of individual customization per plugin. Mm. So their support under IE is lagging behind what they're able to offer the other browsers. But I just think, I, you know, hats off to the Mozilla group for doing this too. I mean, really, they, they could easily be snarky and say, we're not going to help anybody else. Because those browsers are competing with Firefox, obviously, but they're not. They're saying, look, this stuff matters. Plugins are hurting the web in general. And so since we acquire the technology and the knowledge, we're going to make it available cross-browser, which is way cool. So, you know, this is a major tip for today is mozilla.com slash plugin check, no matter what browser you're using. And uh, I, thanks to it, found out that my shockwave is out of date. Yeah. Wow. 
Maybe I'll just uninstall. When you download the Shockwave installer, you get an uninstaller as well. This might be a good time to run the uninstaller. Yeah, I was going to say, um, you could... You could keep it. You could certainly keep it around and put it back in if, if you, you find play, out you you need it. Right? Maybe you play shockwave games or something like that. But right. So so if it's if you do need it, you want to keep it current. You, but it makes no sense at all to have a vulnerable plugin that you never use. That is, you may have something may have said you need it three years ago, and inertia has left it in. You know, I mean, a, another nice security feature <laughs> of what we could dream about would be. If things realized they hadn't been used for a long time, they'd pop up and volunteer to leave. Right. Of course, you know, we're not going to see that anytime soon. But so, so we need to be proactive. And I would say if, you're, if you've got Shockwave and you don't know why, uninstall it because this is from Adobe. And unfortunately, that's not good news. Somebody in the chat room asked and a, a good question. I don't know if you have an answer. If user access control the uac and windows will protect you against stuff like that my sense is it would not because no, it will not you've already given permission to the browser to run yes in fact someone asked also i think it was a q it was a it was a piece of mail that i that i scanned through and didn't quite make the cut for today was would a firewall prevent plugins from misbehaving right right and again that they a firewall won't because the plugin is running in process. It's running in the browser's process. And we talked about also in our Fundamentals of Computing in the Multiverse episode a couple of weeks ago, how, you know, what processes are. And these process boundaries are, are regarded as sort of autonomous units by things like firewalls. So when you have permitted Firefox, for example, or IE or whatever your browser is, to access the internet as you virtually have to. I mean, that's what the, that's what the thing's for. Um, you've given the browser permission to, to communicate to the internet. Implicitly, you've given all of its plugins permission to do the same thing. So, so your, unfortunately, your control for plugins is within the browser. Um, why not? I don't, I don't, I didn't mean to really say unfortunately. I, um, the, the fact is you can manage plugins. Um, easily under add-ons and plugins under Firefox. The same thing for IE. You you can go through IE and look at all the paraphernalia that your that your Internet Explorer has collected over time, and just say, I don't know what this is. I think I'm going to disable it, and you know, until I think I need it again. I'm well, sorry. I didn't. <laughs> I didn't mean to disappear on you. I was just. I was no, just it's thinking. okay. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I, was I, I was. I was also catching my breath yeah. because we talked just last week or the week before about a a critical problem in Safari regarding the way it handled sorry Safari for Windows the way it handled pop-ups and right. there was a, a a means had come up that allowed pop-ups to be abused. Well, we've got another two problems in Safari which are so new that Apple has neither acknowledged nor responded to them. Oh boy. Yet there are technical details publicly available for the first of these. So we are currently at 4.0.5 of Safari. And unfortunately, that version, the most recent version from Apple, has two problems. The first is caused... By, and we've talked about this before also, a use after free error in the way uh, Apple's Safari for Windows handles references to Windows objects after releasing them, such that 
a specially crafted web page can be used to trigger this vulnerability and a successful ex- exploitation of it might lead to remote code execution. Um, and again, um, technical details for this are available publicly. So uh, Safari doesn't, as we know, doesn't have a large market share. But the danger... On Windows, is in, yeah. On Windows. Exactly, yeah, exactly, on Windows. Uh, but the danger is that someone might know that a corporation or a right. group or a company or a user is a Safari user and then do a so-called, you know, a directed attack. Spear phishing. Um, yeah, um, I, I, I jumped over that because there was a different term that we used recently um, that, because this, it might not be a phishing attack. Right, it's it not an email be, necessarily. Yeah, it was, I can't, I, I'm blanking now on what the term was, but there were, we had a new term of art that we'd started using right. that was like targeted, you know, targeted hacks, targeted exploits, targeted. Yeah. There was a better word for it. Anyway, it'll, it'll occur to us or someone in the chat room. We'll, we'll, we'll let you know what it was. Yeah. Um, so, uh, and the second is, uh, an information Wep- weaponized email. Weaponized email. (laughs) Thank you to uh, Window Washer, who was the first to get that one. Yep. So someone could send you, if they knew you were using Safari, a piece of weaponized email. uh, (laughs) That's nasty sounding. (laughs) That could take you down. So the second issue is an information disclosure uh, problem with the way Safari handles HTTP authentication credentials in an HTTP request that can cause some information to leak out of your computer. So not such, such, such a big deal to worry about as remote code execution, but still, you know, hopefully Apple will jump on this and, and bring us up to 4.0.6, which uh, will let people know uh, when that happens. In the meantime, there's no fixes available for these. So be careful if you're a Safari user. On Windows. Now, yes. Uh, and by the way, I just wanted to mention that I realized often we're talking about security updates and other times we're talking about security news. I had previously been sort of merging them together and I've decided I'm going to sort of break that out since they are separate issues. So that's all of our update stuff. Now in the news, um, there was a truly horrifying uh, revelation which occurred recently. Um, This is uh, some security researchers at uh, UC San Diego and also University of Washington have recently delivered a report. Just, I mean, so recently I don't have it yet, but they did release some news about their results uh, hacking car control systems. And the, the only way I can do this justice is to, to, is to read this story, which was covered many places. And, and this, in, in this instance, it's from the BBC uh, uh, the news.bbc.com uh, says an investigation by security researchers found the systems to be fragile. That is, car the, the control systems in cars to be fragile and easily subverted. The researchers showed how to kill a car engine remotely, turn off the brakes so the car would not stop, and make instruments give false readings. Despite their success, the team said it would be hard for malicious attackers to reproduce their work. So I want to make sure that that you that everybody heard that. But this is my concern is what this foretells. And we'll talk about that once I'm through reading the story. 
says the term of researchers led by Professor Stephen Savage from the University of California, San Diego, and Tedyashi Kono from the University of Washington set out to see what resilience cars had to an attack on their control systems. Quote, our findings suggest that, unfortunately, the answer is little, wrote the researchers from the Center of Automotive Embedded System Security. The researchers concentrated their attacks on the electronic control units, ECUs, scattered throughout modern vehicles, which oversee the workings of many car components. It is thought that modern vehicles have about 100 megabytes of binary code spread across up to 70 ECUs. So 100 meg of code scattered across as many as 70 different electronic control units. Individual control units typically oversee one subsystem, but ECUs communicate so that many different systems can be controlled as the situation demands. For instance, in a crash, seatbelts may be pre-tensioned, doors unlocked, and airbags deployed. So there's a reason for these systems to intercommunicate is the point they're making. The attackers created software called CarShark, to monitor communications between the ECUs and insert fake packets of data to carry out attacks. The team got at the ECUs via the communications ports fitted a standard on most cars that enable mechanics to gather data without a vehicle, I'm sorry, data gathered, to gather data about a vehicle before they began servicing or repair work. The researchers mounted a series of attacks against a stationary and moving vehicle to see how much of the car could fall under their control. Quote, we were able to forcibly and completely disengage the brakes while driving, making it difficult for the driver to stop, wrote the researchers. Conversely, we are able to forcibly activate the brakes, lurching the driver forward and causing the car to stop suddenly. In one attack, the team transformed the instrument panel into a clock that counted down to zero from 60 seconds. In the final seconds, the horn honks, and as zero is reached, the car engine shuts off and the doors are locked. They found that almost every system in the car, including engine, brakes, heating and cooling, lights, instrument panel, radio, and locks, was vulnerable. The team concluded that car control software was fragile and easy to subvert. In some cases, simply sending malformed packets of data rather than specific control codes was enough to trigger a response. The team are presenting a paper on their research and their on their results at the IEEE Symposium on Security and Privacy in California on the 19th of May, which is the day before we're recording this is yesterday for Wednesday because we're recording this episode on Thursday this week uh, because, as you know, we, Paul and I swapped. Yes, um, which is days. very kind of you. Thank you. And I and Not a, I should say very kind of Elaine. I apologize to Elaine, her transcriptionist who has to work twice as fast today. Um, so they oh, yeah. So they said cars benefit from the fact that they are hopefully and this is they put hopefully in their paragraph not connected to the internet parens yet and currently are not able to be remotely accessed said rick ferguson a security analyst at trend micro 
So in order to carry out a successful attack, you would already need to have physical access. You would currently need to have physical access to the vehicle as a break-in or as a mechanic seem um, seem the two most likely scenarios today. As cars and everything else in life, up to and including even pacemakers or refrigerators, become steadily more connected and externally accessible, research such as this should be taken increasingly seriously by manufacturers, he added. Quote, this represents an opportunity to head off a problem before it starts in the not-too-distant future as it may result in a real risk to life, and which is why I felt it was really important to share this. I mean, our listeners already know how terrifying this news is because we are, I mean, there's this tremendous drive to add features to our technology. And you can, I mean, we know that there's XM radio now, you know, in autos that are, that is sending data to, so that we're able to listen in our cars. Um, There's, beginning to be technology that lets you check on your car. I'm, I know there's some web-based stuff that allows you to, to, to have some sort of interface with your car in some situations. So, uh, unfortunately, um, I mean, I just, I, I, I hope that, that the people who are building these systems are listening to security now and they're being insistent enough with their management about the kind of safeguards that need to be put in place. Um, it's, it's, it's already dispiriting to learn that it's possible to have, I mean, we know the problems that Toyota has been having with their brakes, and presumably this is buggy code, but here we see that it's possible for, in a research environment, for, for, just accessing through the access ports that mechanics use that it's possible to 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 deliberately cause a car's brakes to be disengaged so that the foot pedal no longer engages the calipers on the discs well I mean so, so that's a hack but we should emphasize you need physical access to that port you have to get in the car and reprogram in, it in well we ha- we should act we should emphasize what we know, which is what the, the researchers did have physical access. Right. So, yes, right. I don't want to scare anyone away Somebody, from nobody's driving. Gonna, nobody's going to be pointing something at you, a ray gun, at, a, a, a portable dog killer at you, a brake killer at you as you drive by. You have to get in the car. That, that access port's usually right under the steering wheel on all modern cars, and they have to plug into it. At least that's the hack that they were doing. Yes, themselves. and so, so the concern, I, I, again, I don't want to, I don't want to over-alarm anyone, but but Leo, we know where these things go. I mean, it's funny because as I'm reading about them talking about a malformed packet, it's like, wow, yeah. that's what we had with routers yeah. 10 years ago. It's software. Software's it's, packable it, often. Y- yes, and and unfortunately, we, we, when we hear that there's 100 megabytes of code, it's like, okay, uh, you know, I'm going to keep my current car running as long as I can. Just, you know, because... I like the you, old, the, the nine-year-old technology you, I have. In it. You have a pre. What, what, what is the date that these things became common? I, it's been a while. I have a, well, yes, it is. I mean, I have a two thousand one car, so it's nine years old, and it doesn't and, have the port. Oh, I, I think it does. Yeah, I think ninety eight is when they start putting those ports in. 
I think it does. I mean, yeah. I think that that that's what they check. Ninety six. Yeah. But the, again, what happens is, as as we've seen before, it's like, oh, these ports are nice. These ECUs are right. handy. Let's put them, you know, in the seatbelt. Let's put them, like, you know, seventy of them apparently scattered around now in many cars, all little little nodes. I mean, it's like the Borg, right. little nodes communicating with each other, and it's like, oh, you know, uh, again, uh, I wish there weren't. Okay, first of all, what would be the motivation? It's difficult to see the motivation, and motivation does matter because. We know we know that people are hacking. We know that bad guys, uh, hidden through anonymity on the internet, are hacking people's computers to get their credit card numbers and and identity and and authentication information in order to ultimately somehow to make money, to steal money, to you know, or send send spam or something. So so I hope there isn't motivation for this kind of auto hacking. Frankly, Leo, it, w- it wouldn't surprise me to learn that it's possible today because that's the way these things are. The level of complexity that these vehicles have, a, have obviously now achieved, to me, makes them seem, as these researchers said, extremely fragile. Yeah. And that's just not good news. Right. So, you know, we'll hold our breath. I just, uh, you know, it, uh, it, as we've seen also, it takes motivation. And so... We'll hope there isn't, you know, well, nefarious if, motivation. This will be something on law and order. I mean, it's a way to murder somebody. Yes. <laughs> uh, yes. But, I mean, I remember North by Northwest, they got Cary Grant drunk and they disconnected his brakes and they sent him down a road. <laughs> so right. that was 50 years ago. I mean, uh, they, and, they had and- to cut the brake or let the brake fluid out. But the, if you have physical access to a car, you can well, yes, make you can it do dangerous. Anything. Yes. And that's true in hacking, too, that... A lot of times we hear about exploits that require physical access to the computer. My philosophy has always been if somebody has physical access, you're screwed. Uh, and my point is physical today, right. non-physical tomorrow. Right. Because it's That's, software. Well, and because there's a, trem- I mean, there's a tremendous desire for connectivity. I mean... It, That's it, the it, issue because right now you can't get into a car remotely because it's not online. It's not... You know, it's not, I mean. Well, we hear about OnStar and, you know, oh, sir, we we well, know you've been in an accident. We're going to deploy the I ta- 911. I talked with Ford about this, as a matter of fact, the CEO of Alan Mulally of Ford about this. And they make very sure to separate the entertainment computer from the car computer. And that there is not merely a firewall, but there's there are not connected systems. Good, 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 good. So because of that. Right. Uh, you don't you don't if you're going to open connectivity and they're boy, they really are increasing it. You cannot allow that that connected computer to speak to the car computer. That would be dangerous. Yeah. Well, and we heard same good intention with the the high security government networks that were going to be not connected to the Internet. But, you know, they ended up somehow being connected to the Internet. And of course, that's somebody's pointing out, yeah, pointing out that the OnStar system can disable the car. The OnStar operator can disable the car. That would seem to me a. a That's what I'm saying. Kind of an Leo. issue. I, 
I don't know how they, you know, and I think there are rules about can they do it when it's running, et cetera, et cetera. I know, I know. And where did they get their security certificates? Who signed them? And right. you know, and has that been spoofed? I mean, you uh, you put together a blended attack, and it's like, oh boy, this stuff relies on on infrastructure that we that that you know the designers assume is robust, and then elsewhere the security community goes, oh, that's not quite as strong as we thought it was. And then somebody with the motivation, again, it takes motivation, and I just don't want to have any motivation. Yeah. But, you know, unfortunately, this is, I mean, I hate being wrong. I hate being right about this kind of thing, but, ooh, it's really cute. It's really deeply creeps me out. Yeah. Now you got a good point. Yeah. Now, Google and Wi-Fi. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, first, I learned of this was when... A, a journalist with Reuters called and said, Steve, have you heard about the Google admission that they were promiscuously, well, actually, that's, that's my word. I explained to him what prom promiscuous mode was on a, on a Wi-Fi radio, uh, that they were capturing publicly available data um, and storing it, recording it on hard drives. And I quick, was quickly brought up to speed and, you know, talked to him about, what I thought this meant. So for those of our listeners who may not have heard the story, it's been making big news almost for a week now because it was last Friday that uh, I talked to this reporter. Um, Google in their in their street view technology, and we talked about this a couple of weeks ago uh, relative to my realization with my iPad that the Skyhook service, which Apple apparently uses, was was able to capture SSIDs and MAC addresses from Wi-Fi hotspots as they were driving around with GPS, mapping where all these things were. And I thought it was very cool that this was available even in encrypted networks because the SSID and the MAC address are available in the clear. It has to be in the packet or it won't work. Correct. So what what we found out was that I believe it was Germany that was pressing Google because the Germans were very upset, just sort of felt a little creepy from a privacy standpoint, were apparently really pressing Google for exactly what data it was that they were capturing. And that forced an admission from Google that, whoops, uh, well, we didn't really intend to, we didn't mean to, we didn't want to, but... It turns out that despite all of those uh, disclaimers, we were capturing the payloads of the Wi-Fi data that our Street View cars encountered as they were roaming around Germany and storing them on disk drives, and we have all that. So the, the reporter from Reuters said, Steve, what does that mean? And I said, well... It's funny you should ask, because we've talked about this issue a lot on security now. The podcast I do with Leo Laporte, I explained that, well, that could be the websites people were visiting, the email that they were transacting. They're, it, it, very often, if they're using a POP or IMAP protocols that is not web-based mail, typically, but regular sort of er earlier protocols, their username and password would be in the clear. Um, 
you know, not super sensitive stuff, which is generally deliberately encrypted by, you know, their connection, if not, and in this case, not by the Wi-Fi network. I said, but, you know, radio is radio. It's being broadcast. This stuff is in the clear. Now, I did hear in part of Google's explanation for how this happened, a, a plausible, a plausible um, uh, source of, of like code. Apparently, some other researcher doing something else years before had written some code that, expl- that did do promiscuous capture. That is to say, it simply sucked in everything that a Wi-Fi radio could receive and stored it. And when years later, a different group who were doing the Street View project said they kind of looked around Google's massive you know, project and software repository. It's like, oh, look, over here is some code that we could use that somebody wrote before. So they just kind of grabbed it into sort of typical open source mode and dropped it in to their technology for Street View and saved themselves reinventing the wheel. Now, what this code did was record all the payloads of all the packets um, rather than only what they really needed. As we've discussed before, what they really needed was the the Beacon's SSID, the Hotspot's SSID, and the MAC address with, you know, tagged with the current GPS coordinates and presumably the signal strength. Because, you know, if, if I were doing this, I would incorporate signal strength in so that as the car was moving, you'd get a sense for, you could actually do very good triangulation over time to to, to get the a sense for the physical location of this node whose SSID and MAC address you've acquired by looking at the signal strength, you know, as the car drives around. So, so I think the problem is that hard drives are huge. I mean, and Lord knows Google must have some sort of serious quantity discount they get on, on, on buying hard drives with, you know, indexing and caching the internet and Gmail that apparently has endless storage and so forth. They're, I mean, Google's probably got more storage than anything else on the planet. So hard drives don't cost much. They probably weren't worried about saving hard drive space. So they were probably recording packets and maybe tagging it with this extra metadata, SSID, MAC address. Uh, well, actually, that would be part of the packet. So um, you know, and like the the GPS information, and maybe just just who knows? I haven't looked at the, in detail at their Street View technology, but sure, they could be doing all of this processing in the vehicle as it drives around, or they could just massively suck all, all this uh, in. Yes, I bet you that's what they were doing, and then that would explain my, it. Yeah. Yes, that's my guess is that they had a, a relatively brain dead massive capture operation where they were just sucking this stuff in, tagging the packets with the GPS metadata, and then then offline or off the street, rather, you know, like back at headquarters, then they would reprocess the data in and do all the computations necessary to, you know, geolocate 
the specific MAC address and SSID node. I mean, that makes sense. So they, they didn't have to do it that way, but it was, that was probably the path of least resistance, which it makes sense they would, they would do. So, you know, I, I, I guess my, my overarching feeling is, hey, the best, new, the best thing about this is it serves as a wake-up call about uh, unencrypted Wi-Fi. And um, in other news, and I can't remember whether I mentioned this, whether we had a Q&A. I think we actually do. Somebody mentioning a recent judgment by the German government um, about unencrypted Wi-Fi. But um, to me, the, this helps raise awareness of, of the relative exposure that people have not having their wireless networks encrypted. I mean, this, as yeah. we, we talked about it all the time. Now, I mean, it's fragmentary data they got. They probably got nothing of value. True. They would have, see, that's just it. Germany's freaking out over this. Right. And my sense is, first of all, I really believe that this wasn't deliberate. No. I, I can see how they would have followed a path that would have allowed them to capture this due to what they explain. It's entirely plausible to me. I mean, and the you know why would they care? I mean, they've got as much data as they could ever ask for. Just do be just being Google, right? They, they don't need to drive around and suck up random packets from that are unencrypted as they're driving by. It's not like they set up you know permanent listening posts right. and and right. we're sucking this in. So yes, I, I think it's on one hand much to do about nothing. Their explanation makes sense. Um, and but I do hope it serves as a bit of a wake up. Absolutely, call. yeah. I mean, if you still have an unencrypted, the point in in a way is these people are broadcasting that stuff anyway. It's out there. All Google did was the same thing you do when you listen to a radio station. It's being broadcast. Yes. So you really ought to not broadcast. Is the, exactly. is the message? It's, ra it's radio, and you're you know if your keystrokes and your username and password, the sites you're visiting are available. Well, I, again. I hope that the story serves to raise awareness of this, that the Google doesn't get, you know, tainted because uh, of what they did. I mean, I, I, yes, they could have arranged not to store this data, but they have now, know, by the way, and they deleted a, it all. And yes, yeah. and they've got a gazillion trillion terabytes of data. So, you know, what's a little more? Right. Just, yeah. Right. Okay. Uh, Oh, this is a said, bad one here, this one. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> this one is really creepy. Yes, it is. Um, there's, there, and it turns out this is not the only such site. There's a site called pasteit.net, paste-it.net. And so if you use Google to, to do a site-specific search. Oh, oh, I know where you're going with this one. I, I didn't see this in your notes. This is really interesting. Yes. yes. And if you, if so, so for example, if you put google.com slash search question mark and then Q equals site colon paste hyphen it dot net, then the plus sign visa. Or you can just go to the google.com, click advanced search, specify the site. You don't even have it, to do that. If you just do site colon, it, it'll work even in a, a standard Google search. Oh, okay. Yes. Site colon paste it dot net visa will give you this and, result. Yes. Now, I what, know where you're going so, with this too. <laughs> yeah, well, yes. And in fact, Leo, if you do that, just, I mean, it, you click on the first link. Uh, I have, it's safe. 
you will see a page full of people's credit card information, real people, their names, their addresses, their what the heck CV, is this? Their CVV2. This is a site that the bad guys use for buying and selling credit card information. It is a site that designed to allow people to paste information, then they hand, then they get a unique URL, and unfortunately, Google indexes it. And I love it that they have Google ads on the right for <laughs> Capital One Visa cards. Oh. Um, That's nice. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is literally, look at it. It's actual credit card information. Yeah. There they are yeah. with their CVV2 code and the name and oh, the, this is terrible. the street address. I mean, it's horrifying. You know, if you do the and, same thing uh, with SSH, people are publishing their SSH keys in this too. This is a fun search to do. <laughs> with a lot yeah. of things. <laughs> I know. Wow. So the bad guys, yeah, cuz I mean it's not like some not like an individual user put his card in there. This is a list of hundreds. Oh, it's it's hundreds and those links, I mean it, when you do the Google search, you you can sort of see what the dates are. There's some that are only that are fresh. Right. So what so what happens is from from packet capture just like we've been talking about or from from malware some guy running a botnet collects all these. And he's he gets a, it he gets a buyer. Well, he gets a buyer for it, and he uses a site like pasteit.net because right, it's anonymous as, as his anonymous um, intermediary. Yep. So he drops all that stuff there, then gets in a, a unique link, which he you know he gets payment for from from his buyer, sends the buyer the link. The buyer clicks on the link, brings it up, copies the page, and here's a whole ton. Of of you know recently captured fully you know I mean all the information you want in order to charge people's credit cards um, um, maliciously. Hmm. So just thought I would share that little bit of happy news with our listeners. One way this could be solved is if the folks at Paste It would use robots.txt to say don't index this stuff. Yes, that would be that would be a help. Now see, or, or maybe do well. I mean. I mean, the, if this is a problem that we've got anonymous drop sites like this, you know, so I, I guess there obviously there are good. Well, they're purposes. very useful. I mean, I, yeah. I I use them all the time to share code or whatever. Um, so that's fine. And then there's Dropio, which I use, DROP.io, which I use, but they should absolutely block Not Google indexing. Out. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Wow. So, um, Verisign has sold. It's uh, authentication services to Symantec. Oh, how Just interesting. I would, it's uh, like $1.82 or $1.28 billion purchase. Wow. Um, I'm sort of not happy about it only because, um, I don't know, I've never been a big fan of Symantec. Um, and, I mean, I've been buying Verisides, my SSL cert provider, and remember the VIP program that we've yep. talked about extensively? Yep. That's part of it. And VeriSign's whole PKI in infrastructure. So PKI, VIP, and SSL, I guess that's, that's Authenticode also, and I'm an Authenticode user, have all been sold to Symantec for a huge, you know, one point something. I think it was uh, $1.28 billion purchase. I received two pieces of email yesterday because I'm on VeriSign's various lists as a purchaser, as a customer of theirs. So, and it's been in the news. And 
um, you know, I guess maybe I need to change my attitude towards semantic. It's, uh, it's an old attitude back from the days of Gordon Eubanks, who was the founder. And I like him. You didn't like Gordon? Uh, I heard some stories about oh, him. interesting. Actually, from uh. people who really did know, know him, you know, out shooting squirrels. It's like, okay, well, that's too interesting. bad. Interesting. Yeah, because I, 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 when Gordon, because Gordon was originally uh, the CEO of. Uh, P- it was not PFS. It was another uh, great software company that I really liked, and I and I got to know Gordon then. Was it personal software? It wasn't. Was, it was another. They did because um, that was Fred Gibbons. DOS, yeah, it was software. Fred Gibbons. It was a DOS uh, text editor. Um, oh, what was the name of his? Well, I'm sure I can Wikipedia Gordon Eubanks, but um, and, but I knew him in that context. And the, uh, after he went to Symantec, we kind of lost touch. But he worked at Digital Research. He was a, a partner with Gary Kildall. Um, and right. and uh, Naval right. Postgraduate School. He wrote base E base C basic and basic E. Um, let's see. Well, I guess it was uh, Symantec. Q and A. That was it. Q and A was an integrated database and word processor with natural language query, That's which I loved. Right. Do you remember that? Yep. It was really yeah. cool. And yeah. then he became the CEO and president of Symantec. Yeah. Is yeah. it is it Oblix? So VeriSign uh, has sold that off. I just wanted to let our listeners know. So just as a, another little security what news. what it's worth? Tidbit, um, I did want to mention in Errata that, uh, that my handle on Twitter didn't last out the day last <laughs> week. I noticed you changed. Yeah. I, uh, you know, there were, I mean, it, it, it's significant when I, I learned about the, the problem with, with handle length for retweets. Um, that that's a problem because they they take up space in the text of the of the tweet, and you know there was enough comments about well yeah this is a spelling test and I thought okay we don't want to give people spelling agile tests. synapse right so yeah. agile synapse has been replaced just by sggrc now there is somebody named Steve Gibson on Twitter that's not you no it's not and in fact I just saw something from from him actually and I meant to send a note to him this morning but he's I guess now that I've joined. He's just been flooded right. with people who think that I am him. So you are not Steve Gibson. You I'm are SGGRC. He's been on, on Twitter for three years yeah. and um, no doubt likes his handle as it is. I'm just SG as in Steve Gibson and GRC as in Gibson Research Corporation. So SGGRC, that's me. Um, many people did seriously ask for the plans... For the portable dog killer. <laughs> I, you wouldn't believe all of the justifications that I heard for, you know, rats in the backyard. Please, Steve, and... please, please. <laughs> if you're not smart enough to invent it yourself, you're not smart enough to use it, my friend. Well, that's precisely the lesson. I was, I mean, you got me, Leo. You know me well enough. I was thinking about Oppenheimer. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and, and the lesson being... If exactly that, if you're if you're not able to design it yourself, then you you don't pass the test of being responsible enough in its use, because it really you know something like that, as I demonstrated, could cause some problems. Right. So uh, I think it's it's uh, well. First of all, I don't have the plans, and I went rummaging around in you know war surplus plus store bins. Uh, in order to, to get them, you know, like the specific pieces. So I wouldn't even know how to specify it these right, days. Right. And, you know, I just, 
I wanted to share the anecdote, but unfortunately, you know, I did put on the map the fact that you could have a lot of fun with, you know, a sonic beam weapon. Well, give us a clue. What frequency audio does it generate? The problem is the, the I had a, a Heath kit scope that I built in, you know, Christmases before. And there was really no way I didn't, there, I didn't have a frequency counter. There was no way to really calibrate the sweep. My guess is that it was like in the 15 kilohertz range. Very, very low. That's sub-audible. I mean, above audible. No, most people can hear to 20,000. Oh, okay. Not me. So 20,000 is about the, well, and as, as we get older, we do our high frequency cutoff of our ears drops lower and lower. But, you know, when, when like you get an, 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 an audible test where right. they give you those tones. You can hear it. It's, you know? it's almost a physical sensation. Yeah, with fifteen thousand, I think I you can probably not, hear. Yeah, yeah. It, it was, it was, it was high, but it wasn't, you know, supersonic by any means. Just annoying. Well, what is the frequency of those? Um, I guess they 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 don't do it anymore. But in the old days, the motion detector alarms would send out a very very high pitched sound. You could well, hear. Well, that's technically ultrasonic. That's you know I, the idea. When I was a young man, I could tell. I could feel no a kidding. sound. Oh yeah. Well, you I I have I do remember you telling me that you had extremely high frequency hearing in the old days. Well, in fact, well, no, not even so so long ago. Remember when I wrote that? Um, I wrote the um, speech compressor using the Speaks codec. Oh, and, yes. I did hear some differences. There. And we did yeah. the A-B testing. I could absolutely not hear any difference. And then I, you said, oh, I can hear the difference. I said, oh, come on. And right. like I, you know, we, we play, play a little game and you got it every time. The, so the, uh, there is a, um, my kids have it. You can download a ringtone or a, a sound for your iPhone. They call it the uh, teen annoyer. Yes, I heard. And like parents can't hear the phone ring. So the but, kids but use the kids it so can. they can they can uh, notify each other in class. The, the teacher won't hear it, but the kids will hear it. I love it. Yeah. See, this is kind of along the same lines. That's very much. And Henry so. uses it, and uh, you know, I, I we uh, we actually did it during a twit when we had a live audience some years ago, and Dvorak and I are sitting here, you know, blithely playing the tone, and the and the younger people in the audience are going, ah, make it stop, make it stop. So they no really can kidding. hear it. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, it, cool. it, they say mostly people under twenty-five. I love it. That's great. <laughs> yeah. So that's a that's a kind of a sonic uh, audio. Well, it's an audio filter. Uh, yeah, it's, yeah, it's sort of a sonic firewall. Yeah, because you know we can't hear it. Isn't the that old interesting? Folks can't hear it, but the young kids yeah. still can. That's yeah. neat. I'm, I'm I'm trying to find the spec for that tone, but I, I'm thinking it's around fifteen kilohertz. One of our listeners um, did who who listened to episode two forty-eight last week sent me the URL of San Mateo Electronics, sure as hell, on 42nd Avenue. And I thought, oh, my God. So I, it's, it's smelectronics.com. And I, and I clicked the link. At, well, actually, I typed it in myself, because you know about me and links. And uh, put it in my browser. Up it came, 42nd Avenue Electronics. And on the home page, it says, since 1961. And I'm thinking, well, they had been there 10 years before the portable dog killer was uh, <laughs> was was built using the mini box, so you I, found it. Now I have to say that you didn't know, you did not hear it, nor did I. But I played a 15 kilohertz tone moments ago, and the chat room is going ow. No, kid, do it again. 
And and by the way, if you're listening oh, yeah, to the MP3, I, you probably won't hear it. Through. I'll bet it yeah. can't get through. It's probably Skype. It's not. Yeah, but I can't. I'm in the studio and I can't hear it. Wow. But on the other hand, it did. But people on the stream can hear it, which is interesting. Flash, listen, listen. Nothing. They Nothing. hate it. Now I'm gonna I'm gonna play. Uh, let's play something. Uh, let's play uh, 10 kilohertz. You can hear that. Can you hear that? No. Skype's rolling it off then. Yeah, I'm sure they are. Yeah, Skype's rolling that off. We're doing a little hearing test. All right, kids. 20 kilohertz. The chat room's going crazy. <laughs> Now, and I did it as a, I have to say, I did it as a blind test because I did not say I'm going to play the 15 right. kilohertz tone. Right. And well, they really complained. did hear it. They really heard it. It's very interesting, isn't it? Where are you getting these different frequencies? This is a noiseaddicts.com. Oh. And uh, it's called a, a, a blog post I'm called. I'm sorry that I asked. You, I'm sorry that you said. <laughs> it's the online music and audio magazine. And there is a, um, a post, blog post. You'll have to go back a year. Can you hear this? Hmm. And he ranges from 8 to 22 kilohertz, little uh, waves, and actually a very interesting uh, idea. So 15, so you can imagine, imagine if that 15, oh, you can't hear it. Um, I can't it hear was, it. <laughs> I think it might, maybe the portable doll killer was down at 10 then. Because, I mean, it was, you know, I mean, adults could hear it. M- Mr. Archibald had no problem hearing it from across the quad, so... <laughs> <laughs> And, you know, probably, I don't know what MP3 rolls off, but MP3 is a very interesting codec um, that uh, doesn't just, it doesn't necessarily roll off frequencies, but it does some interesting things. And It's doing, it's using psychoacoustic science exactly. in order to understand what it is that we do hear and don't hear in complex right. waveforms, and it gets rid of complexity that we just, that doesn't matter. And the chat room is just going crazy. They are hearing it. They say their dogs are barking. <laughs> Oh my God! I have a headache. I don't know how much of that is facetious and how much of that is real, but I will no longer play anything. <laughs> and it may be it may be that we don't know what the flash. I don't know what the flash media encoder is doing to it. I, uh, so it may be because you, if you're watching at home, you're watching on a. Well, now you've got, you've, it may be curious, so I'll have to go over there and uh, and listen to it myself. We we'll so. have to call this episode the portable listener killer. <laughs> <laughs> so I did get a neat uh, note from a uh, security now listener. Um, Mark Gottslig, uh, his note was, Spinrite saved my Ubuntu, which is not something I've heard often. He's in Calgary, uh, Canada. He said, hello, Steve. I've been a Spinrite owner for several years now, ever since I heard about it on Security Now. I've used it in its maintenance mode the whole time, running it, or not full time, (laughs) but, but never other than maintenance mode, running it monthly on my own PC and running it on friends and family machines when they have me do an upgrade or repair for them, and have gotten several of them to buy copies for themselves after much praise. And hey, Mark, I've got no problem with that, as our listeners know. Thank you. However, uh, that is to say, I have no problem with him running it on other people's machines, encouraging them to buy their own copy. However, I've never had a need to use it in recovery mode until yesterday. I've recently installed the newest Ubuntu release 10.04 and have spent the last week off and on configuring and learning this new OS I've only had a fleeting need for previously. I ended up having a lockup and had to force a reboot with the power button on the laptop. And he said, I didn't know about alt sys request RUSB. I suppose you do, Leo, but I don't know what that is, but some keystroke 
invocation, huh. apparently. Yeah, no. And he said, when it rebooted, I got an error message and a command prompt. Not knowing what happened, I tried a couple of different things to no avail. I figured before I try anything more serious, I'd give Spinrite a whirl. I booted my Spinrite CD and started to watch some TV with a laptop propped on the couch behind me. I was, or beside me, he says, I was very surprised to see the Dynastat screen appear after 30 minutes or so. That's Spinrite's d- dynamic statistics technology, which it, it drops into when it needs to, to do sector level repair. And so he said, and watched excitedly to, sp- to see Spinrite do something I'd never seen before. And then he says, I love it. This novelty wore off quickly. So I, <laughs> so I left the computer to work away at the drive overnight. I checked this morning and Spinrite had completed. I did a quick reboot before work and was shown the, the Ubuntu log, the login screen that I had been trying to get for several hours the previous day. Thank you so much for such a great product. Spinrite saved my Ubuntu. <laughs> so thank you. And, and that's an important point. The Spinrite is not operating at the file system level. It doesn't know from operating systems or file systems. So runs on, on Linux just fine. Yeah, because it's looking at the sectors on the hard drive. Precisely. It does have to run on a BIOS-based machine, though, because you use BIOS calls, which means EFI yes. booting machines like the Macintoshes, it does not work with. Not today. Is somebody, you mentioned at one point somebody was looking at a way to do that. I've heard people anecdotally say they've succeeded, and I've even had them take screenshots. I mean, I've seen photos of Spinrite running on Macs. Really? Because apparently the there is a way of getting Mac to support a BIOS as part of its boot camp procedure. But I've, I've, never, I've never pursued it myself. Right, right. And somebody's asking in the chat room if Spinrite can be put on a USB drive with a bootloader. Can you boot it? In other words, and that would be if your BIOS boots from USB. It will. And absolutely. People, I mean, I, I have it on my own USB key um, that I carry around with me. And I, I've mentioned before, yeah, Spinrite often, there is a, um, in fact, I've read an, a story a couple times where someone had a USB um, drive, flash drive that was too large for his BIOS to recognize but he used a smaller one, which the BIOS did recognize, and it just booted and ran spin right fine. We should point out, though, that, and this is a different thing, that checking a USB drive with spin right is going to give you limited results. Oh, no, no, no. I don't want to do that. the USB hides the interface. Well, and there's, I mean, Spinrite's really oriented toward physical magnetic media. No, but I mean, a spinning USB, you're right. You, obviously, a flash drive, don't oh, do Oh, a USB connected A USB hard connected drive. hard drive. Yes. Well, it's we do have success stories with it. I'm not as I'm not as bullish about it because as you as you say Leo, the USB interface only does reads and writes and Spinrite is able to do a much better job if it's phys- have like has physical low level access to the drive. That's far superior, but right. People say, you know, I mean, as a last resort, Spinrite can still work. Yeah, worst case, you'd take out, I mean, if you really, if it didn't work, take it out of the USB enclosure. It's still a yes. SATA or a IDE drive and then put it on a PC, then Spinrite it. Yes, and I have had people successfully do that with their Macintosh. They've taken the drive as a last resort out right. of their Mac over to a PC motherboard and run it there and Spinrite will fix the drive that way. 
and even iPod drives, I've been told. Many. Oh, remember? Yes. Um, we had a lot of people. There was one guy that, that we read who had a large collection of iPods because right. he, he became the iPod dumping ground right. for all of his friends. Right. And then he realized, hey, Spinrite fixes these. Fix and he fixed a whole bunch of them and said, gave them back their music. There was that bad. You got to get point. the interface and all that. Yep. Hey, you know, I don't want to put you out of business, but some of this uh, wouldn't be necessary if people would just back up. They're freaking computers. And that's where Carbonite comes in. We talk about Carbonite all the time. They're a great product for people who... I'm going to put it on Abby's laptop. She's about to go to college in August, and uh, she'll have a laptop. I don't know why I didn't think of this sooner. I'll just put Carbonite on it. And what happens is when Carbonite can get online, and if it's on, even if it's on a Wi-Fi network or whatever, when you're online, as long as you're not using the... Uh, you, know, you don't need all the bandwidth or your computer is idle, it will back up stuff automatically in the background all your personal files on your hard drive unlimited amount of what's on your hard drive um for less than five bucks a month so i mean and it, it doesn't even need to know i'm backing her up but if she should lose the drive lose the laptop or need a file that she accidentally deletes i say well abby guess what log into carbonite there's your file it's always available aes 256-bit encryption to protect your privacy you control the key it also does SSL if you uh, are sending through a, you know, if you are on one of those Wi-Fi access you know, hotspots in the campus, uh, you know, cafeteria or the coffee shop, it's still secure as it's going up. Uh, I'm actually just going on. Carbonite is a great solution. I want you to try it. No credit card needed for the next 15 days. Mac or PC, if you go to Carbonite.com and use the offer code security now, security now, you don't need a credit card, just security now. And uh, you could try it, see how it backs up. See what it's doing. If you decide to buy and you use the coupon code security now, you'll get two months free. But you have to do the trial first. I, I think Carbonite is such a boon, not just for laptop users, but for anybody who doesn't want to think about backup but wants to make sure that data is protected. It does it automatically in the background, securely, at a very affordable price. Less than $55 a year for unlimited backup from your internal drive. Carbonite.com, the offer code security now. Give it a try. Steve, I have questions. We're already, well, we're an, we're an hour, hour in. in. <laughs> <laughs> you want to do a few anyway? Absolutely. Why not? Let me uh, pull up the questions here. We'll we'll get to as many as we can before uh, before. Well, we got we got forty minutes. Yeah, we do. Before Nobody's ever complained about the show being too long. No. You can always pause it. That's the beauty of it. It's Paul Stubb or Stubb in Nashville, Tennessee, wrote about the portable dog killer. Your episode last. And let me just uh, briefly interrupt and say, I got a ton of email from our listeners. I really thank them. Um, the, clearly, the episode was the most popular one we've ever done. I actually had people rating it. So, someone thought the vitamin D episode was number one. This one was number two. Somebody other who's not into security, obviously. Thought it was the other way around. <laughs> um, so I just chose one of so many notes because, as our listeners are about to see... This this achieved my dream for for one of the main reasons I wanted to share that uh, last week. Excellent, excellent. So Paul writes, uh, just wanted to add my voice to the likely thousands of people emailing you about the latest security now. It was absolutely wonderful. My wife, God bless her, usually hates security now for reasons I'll never understand. I might have an idea, but... Uh, <laughs> but she absolutely loved this episode. I had it on the background Saturday morning. It was a little Garrison Keeler-ish, wasn't it? It was it, so good. In fact, she thought so highly of it that she made our eight-year-old son listen to it. 
He's a typical eight-year-old who loves to play video games, and like most kids his age, he plays them way too often. But after listening to the show, he went right into our garage and started disassembling some of his old broken electronic toys. He wanted to see how the components fit together, and I'm pretty sure... He had grand ideas about making his own Sonic Blaster. Anyway, thank you for the wonderful episode, and please give us more like it. Wow, that's great, Steve. That's so really great. yeah. I just and I've the next the next question feeds into this, um, in and something that I wanted you to contribute uh, to, Leo. Great. So, I, and again, I want to thank everybody for writing. I really I appreciate that they appreciated the episode. I felt like I was taking a little bit of a risk going so far off topic but i think it worked so yeah you know we do a lot of security information we did even on that show and i think it's yes it's good to talk about your life experience because you've you've got some mike york in seattle washington writes about our mention of first robotics in episode 248 i mentioned the uh, first usa robotics competition Thanks for the mention of first. I've been involved for seven years serving as a team mentor, a judge, and a referee. Hey, it does make a difference, a significant difference. We've seen phenomenal growth of first FRC teams here in Washington State the last few years and expect it to continue as more businesses see the value of first and provide resources for teams, scholarships, and competitions. As a referee at the Seattle regional this year i had the best seat in the house to see here and smell the robotics competition it's uh, encouraging to see the excitement in these scientists and engineers of the future keep the good work up and great podcast while security now may not be an appropriate podcast for a segment on first it may be a good subject for one of leo's other endeavors yeah i think we're we're gonna i want to do a first show um, if you go to usfirst.org, you can uh, read about the first robotic competition, FRC. And there are different programs for all ages. And the high school team, which is, of course, kind of the, the varsity league of first, um, is what I think I'm going to do. And they say it's about $6,000. That includes all the gear and so forth. So I'm gonna, I want to fund this first team in my kid's high school. And then I want to do a show. I have to, I have to get... To, waivers from all the parents and everything because i would like to do a kind of a reality show following them week after week as they as they design and build these robots well i just i love the notion of a robot because i do think there, there's a little something lost in a software only solution i mean we, we talked about programming and and programming's interesting the reason video games are compelling is that they have that they have at least some real-world tie-in. But what's beautiful about a robot is that it merges the physical world, I mean, some sort of battery and motor, and also the, the, the computerized controller and software world together. And so you can, you can have relatively simple hardware that doesn't have to be powerful and exotic, just, you know, a couple motors mounted on a platform with wheels and then you give it you give it the brains in software so you, but but you but you get something physical something tangible right. you know it's it's like these lights that are blinking behind me people that, love that, those lights you want to explain those briefly so people well <laughs> i was just going to say that you know they're their machines their their pdp8 computer emulations but they exist physically it would have been far easier to have just an emulator 
on the screen that looks like those. But those things actually exist. They've got switches and buttons and, and lights and knobs. And, I mean, the, the, the tangibility of it really makes a difference. The, the fact that it exists physically. And so I just, uh, this idea of, of messing with a robot because it just isn't expensive any longer. You know, a couple motors and, I mean, there's lots of resources on the web. These little controllers like the pick chips are only a few dollars now. You know, there's even Lego that, that you know, if you want to back away and not even get your hands very dirty, there's like Lego robotics kits where where you get to stick this thing together and then again do the programming in, in, in you know, in a simplified programming language. But, again... Do something. The, the, I just, if you can break that inertia. Also, I'm trying to think what it was in the past. There's something that I talked about that a lot of people wrote back sort of like, oh, I'm going to go do that with my son. That'd be a perfect thing to do with my son. And mm. and I don't remember now what it was, but that's another idea. Or you know daughter. I mean? Or daughter. Or daughter, yes. Um, you know, the whole, there's a problem, I think, you know, just cross generational you know the eight-year-old wants to play video games the boy if he wanted to like build something with his dad or or dad and daughter and actually i did i did get some mail from from dads who had daughters who were listening to good. 248 good uh, yeah. so, and, and who wanted to engage them um, in this way so again i think that the ro- the robot connection there's a hook there because you don't have to build something really fancy even some basic mechanics that you then give a brain to with programming, and then you get that real-world thing. It's like, oh, look, it's actually moving on the floor. Right. Lego Mindstorms are great. In fact, there is a Lego Mindstorms robotics uh, first competition, and uh, I know that our high school uh, participated, did very well. So that's a very easy one. And uh, they're suggesting in the chat room, and I absolutely should mention Arduino, which is a really interesting open-source electronics prototyping platform that includes a processor. Uh, has its own programming language. People are building all sorts of interesting things uh, from Arduino. We did an interview with the Arduino, uh, one of the Arduino uh, 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 designers on uh, Floss Weekly, and I encourage you to listen to that or go to Arduino, A-R-D-U-I-N-O dot C-C. This is another great way you can get started with kits and robotics, and it's really, really cool. So there's, a, there, you know, I think there's more stuff out there than ever before, really. I mean, we had Heathkit when we were kids, Yep. But, but there's a lot of cool uh, kind of hardware, software things out there right now. Yes. And all I would ever, I mean, all I'm suggesting is break the inertia. Yes. Do something. Do something. You know, just, it's, it's, it's all out there, but don't let it stay out there. Bring it inside. Right. Question three from listener Matt. He says, please, sir, can I have some more? Episode 248 was fantastic. Oh, and you're right about control C, the, you know, copy paste bug. It's been uh, like that for a few years, so much so that it's second nature for me to always now press Control-C-C. And that always works, but it's a pain in MS Office because it brings up a multiple-paced toolbar. So everybody's responding to this. I mean, apparently it's something people are really having happen. Yes, I wanted to to drop this in from Matt mostly as a placeholder and reminder. Many of our listeners have responded that... They were so happy to hear this brought it's up. Not just you. <laughs> they've been thinking it was just them right. for a long time. And one person wrote a lengthy piece of email where he's convinced this happened at Service Pack 3. Oh, interesting. Of, that, of that, XP. 
of XP's, and it's in it's in Vista and Seven that Microsoft did deliberately hmm. in their security enhancements for Service Pack Three. They changed the way the keyboard hooking technology works in order to, to thwart some behavior of keystroke logging. And that it's his belief, and this is not confirmed, but I just wanted to share it, that 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 was the boundary, that Service Pack 2 works fine, reliably, huh. and that it got broken somehow subtly when Microsoft went to Service Pack 3 and beyond, that that was the boundary, and it had something to do with the way Microsoft increased the security for in order, in order to thwart keystroke logging. So uh, I don't know whether that's true or not, but I thought that was an interesting um, uh, thought. And I know that Paul and Microsoft are pursuing this. So if if you, if you think of it, when you talk to Paul again, say, I hey, will you ask know, him. Yeah, uh, can, you know, can, have them take a look at that. They are apparently. I don't know what's going on with that. Jason in uh, question five. Jason in Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada, wonders and worries about magic packets. Hi, Steve. I was troubleshooting my network adapter, and I came across a network setting in Windows 7 I've never seen before. The checkbox said, allow a magic packet to wake the computer. Should I be worried about the magic packet? Is it some strange, secret Microsoft backdoor we don't know about? I did a bit of reading on the magic packet, and now I have a bit of understanding of it. But I'd appreciate a Gibson explanation, if possible. Thanks for the great netcast. You and Leo are doing a great service for the security community. Something we've never talked about. I never heard the, of. The wake on LAN. Oh, I have seen that in even in BIOS settings. Yes. And in fact, that's where it has to be. Um, uh, and some case, you, in some cases, you can put it on your, in, on your network adapter because it'll then write it in the firmware of the network adapter. Typically, it's a BIOS setting. Wake on LAN is a, techno- a really interesting technology that allows you to essentially have your computer turned off, completely off. On the other hand, many people have probably noticed that it, our computers are never completely off any longer. And it's a little distressing the first time you notice, for example, that with your computer off, there's still like a little light on the motherboard that's on. And that like the network adapter, if, you, if your network connector has little LED monitors, they'll still be flickering. It's like, wait a minute, if my computer's off, how is this stuff on? Well, the LAN adapter is still powered up specifically for the purpose of allowing your computer, if it's enabled, to be powered up upon receipt of a so-called magic packet. Um, what's magic about it is the, of, is, is the payload that a, that a LAN broadcast packet carries. We've talked about MAC addressing several times, even in this hour. Um, the, the MAC address is the Ethernet, the 48-bit Ethernet address of the packet on the network. But in several instances, it's necessary for a adapter on the network to be able to call to everyone. For example, ARP protocol uses that. When, when a computer is coming on the LAN for the first time, it says... Um, it sends out a broadcast asking for the it knows the IP, for example, of the gateway, but it needs to get the MAC address of the gateway. So it'll send an ARP broadcast that that is that is addressed to um, the 
to the broadcast address of the um, of on the LAN, which is heard by every NIC, every network interface card on the LAN. What happens is the the so-called magic packet is any broadcast packet where somewhere in the payload, somewhere in the data payload of the packet, there are six bytes worth of all ones. That is to say, FF, 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 FF. Six bytes of all ones, followed by 16 repetitions of the MAC address of the NIC whose computer you want to wake up. So the idea is, if, if some device on the network wanted to wake up a given computer, the computer is off. And remember that there isn't an IP protocol on, on an Ethernet. There's only the MAC address. So you have to advance. You need to know the MAC address of the computer you want to wake up. Because it's not until the whole TCP IP stack exists that it has an IP address. And that's defined in the software. What we need is something which is defined in the hardware while the computer's, you know, independent of operating system, completely turned off. Well, that's the MAC address. So if you know that in advance, you just put a packet onto the LAN sent to all of the adapters on the network containing the the, the special um, six bytes of ones followed by 16 repetitions of the 48-bit MAC address. If, the, if it's been enabled in the BIOS and or the adapter, and that machine is, is, has the ability to be awakened by such a packet, the adapter will see that, scan for that string, see that it matches its own MAC address, and wiggle a little line on its interface to the power supply, turning the computer on. That's quite clever, actually. It's very neat. Yeah. Yeah. And nothing, and completely harmless. Completely harmless. Nothing to worry about. No magic isn't dark magic or black <laughs> magic or evil magic. It's, it's good magic. It's clever. <laughs> but if you, if you, I would say, if it's not something you're actively using, turn it off. Oh, yeah, I As turn it off. Standard, yeah. sta- I do too, because yeah. that's not something I need. So if you see it, Disable it unless you know you need it. As is standard computer, you know, security advice: turn off what you don't know you actively need. Sometimes people call me on the show, say my computer wakes up in the middle of the night, and uh, there's a lot of reasons it could do that. But I wonder if sometimes is it? Do you think it could be possible that a stray packet could somehow do this? Well, this isn't transmittable unless your router is specifically configured. It's not something. It's not routable. Right, it's because it's only it only works within your local LAN, not in a WAN in a wide area network setting. There are routers that that can be configured to send out wake on LAN packets. I would guess that their computers in standby, and something like you know Microsoft Security yeah. has awakened it in order to update itself. Or a cat moved the mouse. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's usually what I tell them. <laughs> First thing I ask them: Do you have a cat? Uh, question six comes from Vagard in Norway. He asks, or Vagard, or Vagard asks about hosted versus self-hosted blogs. So apparently, uh, I didn't know this, but you've started a blog. You mentioned you were going to. 
Well, and he I wants to know why mentioned... you're, why you're using WordPress.com and not uh, hosting it yourself with WordPress. Yeah, the software. I, I think I did mention that I was going to, and I, I do plan to. Um, oh, you haven't done it yet, though. Correct. Okay. My my concern is a couple things. I did look at what it would take to host my own WordPress my own WordPress blog, and unfortunately, the first thing you need to do is install SQL Server. Or no, MySQL. MySQL. I don't care. Uh, yes. <laughs> I, I, it's the last thing I would ever allow into GRC's network. Yeah, because MySQL has all sorts of uh, oh. injection attacks. Yeah. And the other thing is, I mean, I would I would love to host my own, but I thought about it. I mean, I have Unix servers. That's where my news groups are hosted, for example. So, you know, FreeBSD is the Unix that I had chosen years ago. It's been good to me. So I could do that. But it's like, okay, wait a minute. What kind of a rat hole am I going to go down? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what value am I really going to add? And, you know, then it's backing it up. Then it's, you know, blah, 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 you know, and, and so forth. And I just thought, you know, makes much more sense, even though I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have less control. Um, it looks to me like WordPress.com is doing a good job. And so it was, I wanted to bring this up because it's an interesting question that I can imagine many people would, would ask themselves. Do I do this myself? Or do I use a third-party hosting provider? And for me, much as I'm able to, it would take more time than I expect because everything I do does, which would delay everything else that I really right. need to be getting on with, you know, like finally getting going on CryptoLink, but I got to get the other things finished first. Um, and why? You know, so I have it running on my own server. Big deal. I mean, I'm, I will, you know, I did look at WordPress and it does allow me to, to alias my own domain to theirs. So it will be... It won't be obvious where it's hosted at all. It will be... Well, you correct. And it, and for the for ease of use, it'll be at G, somewhere at grc.com. So I get the benefit of using my own domain as the anchor for it, yet all the other mess is theirs. And, you know, there just isn't enough value that I could provide by doing it myself. So that was the, that, that was the decision I made and not an easy one, but I'm sure the right one. I'm not sure I would recommend WordPress.com and not nothing against it. Although they will put, you know, they'll put ads into your stuff. Ooh. Yeah. And that, and there's probably arbitrary JavaScript code also. Uh, you might want to look at Squarespace.com, which is a similar hosted solution, but it's a paid solution. WordPress.com is free. Can you pay WordPress? Oh, you might. Yeah, I'm sure you can. Okay. And it may it may be that they then turn off the uh, the ads and so forth. But uh, Squarespace is a great solution too. So and a, and a sponsor of the network. So I just want to mention oh, Squarespace. Squarespace.com. I think you they're very easy to set up. Uh, okay. They run on a Java. They're basically Java based, and they run on a VPS uh, system. So it's it's uh, scales really well. It's cheap, and uh, they do a good job. And they can do the same, you know, aliasing with a C name and all of that stuff. Okay, I'll check it out. Yeah, I'm a fan. We do. I'm doing my moving my blog over there, and we do our uh, our uh, in-house twit blog there inside twits on Squarespace. Cool. Question seven: Richard Doyle in Sydney, Australia, stumbled upon your legacy project. I don't know what that is. Dear Steve, I'm 32, and I've only been listening to Security Now for a few months, but I'm quickly catching up. Your explanation over the last several weeks of the fundamentals of computer architecture, organization design, and evolution over time has been accessible enough to inspire me to genuinely want to learn more and more about this entire area myself from very first principles. Have you ever thought of writing and publishing a book encompassing in greater detail everything you've explained? 
uh, and would like to explain in the current Security Now series on the fundamentals of computing. Every other resource out there, mostly books, are dry, boring, and many assume a level of knowledge that most people just don't have. And for the most part, every other resource out there is techie from the start. Not a bad thing, but we are badly in need of something that can begin to explain a thing in an extremely simple way and scale up in plain language to the relevant level of detail. Other authors seem to enjoy an abundance of technical jargon for its own sake. And the people you've inspired through your current series on Security Now are left with no entry point into this wonderful and amazing field. Please consider Steve. Um, uh, blah, 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 blah. How a computer works. I, it's, it's, uh, the substance is there. Kindest regards, Richard. I don't have a Twitter account. You know, there is uh, my good friend... Um, wrote uh, and has kept up to date a wonderful book called How Computers Work. I think you probably know uh, him. I'm trying to remember his name. Um, he's He's been doing it for years. Let's see if I can find it on Amazon. And it's beautiful. It's a very, it's, it's now it's uh, Ron, um, Ron White. He's been doing it for years. Oh my goodness. Yeah. You know Ron, right? Yeah. This is, this is, this is kind of the definitive uh, book on this. And it's done with great illustrations. It may not be as technical. It's not as technical, in fact, as as what you're talking about, Steve. But it is definitely aimed at the non-technical. And it's a good start if you're looking for that kind of thing. Incredible illustrations. But Ron is a smart guy. I mean, yeah. the detail in here is fantastic. And he has kept it up to date, which I really admire. So well, I, I think this would be a good start. I, I agree. And it's available today. Right. Um, would you like to do a I, book? Well, no. Yeah, I don't um, think so. <laughs> but I've wondered what this is going to sound strange. You know, I'm 55 and still have a lot of life left in me. But I've wondered what I'm going to do when I'm 75. That is a you know, good question. And as I really do believe that if you retire and sit on the patio in a rocking chair, you expire not long afterwards. <laughs> it seems to be the case in many cases. And and we know that I spent a chunk of time in the last year sort of looking at antique machines. I built the PDP-8s, and um, I also spent a lot of time researching instruction sets. Um, I looked at field programmable gate arrays, which I referred to last week as being these fantastic you know, electronic building blocks, which could be used for defining hardware out of software. And, for example, one of the things that people are doing is they're implementing processor instruction sets in field programmable gate arrays, FPGAs. And, you know, like taking classic instruction sets and, and creating computers out of these field programmable gate arrays. There's something called opencores.com or .org, opencores.org, um, which has a lot of these. And so I thought about that. And I also thought about these antique machines, the PDP-8 and PDP-11s that I have. The problem is they're not interfaced to any contemporary peripherals. I mean, you know, you have to have a teletype or, you know, maybe a serial interface. But, you know, what are you really going to do with them? And so I've sort of just, everything was sort of in a big mashup. And and then I looked at instruction sets and I sort of like surveyed the evolution of instruction sets over time. And all of this sort of ended up giving me the incentive to do this, this fundamentals of, of computer uh, series that, that we've embarked on. And 
for a while, I was thinking, well, I, I, I'm thinking that the PDP-11 was the right instruction set, sort of like something that would be fun to program. And then I thought maybe the VAX. There was one instruction set from a company called National Semiconductor. They did a, they had the, the NS32000 series, which unfortunately never got off the ground. But in many ways, I think it's the best instruction set ever designed. It, it was fun. To, it was fun and nice to program eight general purpose registers, a very regular instruction set, just beautiful. And then I thought, okay, I'd like to program that instruction set, but the tips don't exist anymore. So then for a while I was thinking, okay, I could write the software to, to put this chip into an FPGA, a field programmable gate array, basically create this chip that no longer exists out of contemporary silicon. The problem is that when I, when I thought about, okay, what kind of performance would I get? Well, the things that have been done by like Intel and AMD to squeeze performance out of current processors are just over the top. I mean, it's unbelievable mm -hmm. the technology that is in these things with multiple parallel execution paths and multi-cores and pipelining and, and you know, even optimization of instruction sequences and branch prediction where it guesses based on, based on local um, knowledge uh, what path your your code is going to take, and it's just daunting. So I realized that if I were to create this idealized processor that would start off probably as this, the instructions the National Semiconductor designed five years after DEX VAX, by the way, so they had five years of, of experience with the VAX instruction set and sort of tweaked it a little bit to make it better. I might do the same, you know, tweak it some more. The idea to, would be to create this ideal instruction set. And, but if I put it into hardware, it would never perform like a contemporary machine because there's no way I'm going to invest the unbelievable resources that an Intel or an AMD has. And then it hit me that if I emulated that instruction set, this ideal instruction set in a contemporary processor like the current Intel, does the, the current Intel architecture, then I'd be, I would, in, a, in machine language, I would, I would emulate an, another machine. Sort of like, you know, Pascal, and we've talked about P code, like a pseudo machine. Um, but but because I was writing the emulator in machine language and because I was writing it for hardware, the Intel architecture, which is un already so unbelievably powerful, I would end up with an, an amazing amount of performance of this, like the most beautiful instruction set I've ever seen. I've, that I've, I mean, like that there is, in my opinion. And so then I thought, okay, that's what I would want to write my operating system in. And that's what I would want to create an environment in. And so my plan for retirement, <laughs> my legacy is to, 
essentially create an entire open source free environment around the the most ideal beautiful instruction set that we've ever had and write an entire world a computing world in that meaning assembler editor operating system environment with the goal of teaching the low-level operation of all of this stuff because it's hosted on contemporary hardware Everyone gets to play with it for free, and because it's a virtual machine, it gets to live forever. All anyone would have to do to port it into the future is write that little interpreter for the instruction set, and then everything else is available. So at this point, 20 years before I'm ready to start, that's what I think I'm going to do. That's exciting. I look forward to it. I thought yeah. so. You got a few projects actually for when you <laughs> retire. Uh, I think you're going to be very busy in your seventies. I want to be busy in my seventies. I want to be sure I don't just sit around and decay. So you and I will be doing the podcast episode three thousand nine hundred and twenty-seven. Exactly. Actually, more than that. Well, anyway. So, <laughs> so one of the reasons I like my business uh, is because there it, there's a long tradition of uh, people uh, in their seventies and even older. Look at uh, Paul Harvey. Still working. Yep. Uh, especially radio because, you're, you know, your body can fall apart, but you can still sound good. How old is Jerry <laughs> Pornell, by the way? Um, Jerry's in his 70s. Jerry's yeah. going strong. He's writing his column and, uh, you know, Chaos Manor. And, I mean, I love Jerry. So you're right. You can keep going. Yep. I okay. plan to. And if you don't, if you got to keep it smart up here, but you also got to, and I know you're doing both, you got to keep the body in shape. And Yep. Larry King, how old is he? He's in his 70s, right? Yeah, bad example, though. <laughs> You know, if I'm in my 70s and on my eighth wife, mm. I'm going to figure out. point. There's I'm, something there's still something going there. on. <laughs> An anonymous uh, listener suggests, let's design a network. I really enjoy your program and especially am impressed by how you take the time to explain the fundamental technology to give your listeners a deeper understanding of the weekly topics you cover in your Q&A and your regular episodes. If I may make an episode suggestion, it might be worthwhile completing the Let's Design a Computer series with one or two episodes on networks and the Internet. Oh, I agree. I agree. You talk about how networks work from time to time, but never as comprehensively as you do with computer systems. Considering the network-based nature of most exploits these days, I would greatly enjoy one or two episodes dedicating to a comprehensive explanation of how networks work and the Internet. I could think of no better person for this task. Thanks for the great program. I'd like to add my vote to that. We're going to do that. Yeah. We, we listeners who have been listening for almost five years will know that we did some of that in the beginning. But it was five years ago. And I know that there's been a churn of listeners. We've got listeners who have not been with us since the beginning. And this is such a fundamental core domain of technology, exactly as this anonymous listener suggests, that I think he's right. Um, so we have a bunch of other things sort of already in the queue, things like my analysis of last pass and, and so forth, some things I've already got planned I want to get through. But... Probably around the time we start in on year six, I think that a that uh, that going back over and and taking our time, starting at the at the fundamental basics of of packets and routing and and networks and the internet, 
uh, would be another great series. So we're adding that to the queue. Yeah. And, and, and really, you can uh, start at fundamentals on that even. And I think that there's a lot to be understood. And, and, and frankly, nowadays, you know, it was the old uh, Sun Microsystems slogan, the, the network is the computer. Nowadays, really, a computer without a network is, is yeah. not a significant device. It's the it's network that... Fundamental. Yeah, really is fundamental to the overall operation. Uh, question nine, Ashley Black in Reading, Berkshire, England, brings us the wonderful glitch of the week. Subject, Skyhook. Hello, Steve. I just listened to the podcast where you described the Skyhook Wi-Fi location finding system, and it totally explained a strange bug I'd been having with my iPhone. When using the Maps application on my iPhone, I'll go in the normal mode here. <laughs> Although work. I really did like that. You enjoy it's, amazing, that. it's amazing what a difference that... It, it that... sounds so much more cultured and intelligent. <laughs> it does. I have, I have British friends, and they just they all sound so literate. When using the Maps application on my iPhone, the reason I stopped doing it is because the British people are howling in pain. Yes. Going, it's like, oh, my goodness. Just like when we see a British actor sometimes, not um, Hugh Laurie is an example of somebody who I was just going to say, it's Perfect. amazing when you yeah. see him interviewed separately when right. he's not a doing A good actor mask. can do a good accent, but I am not that. When using the Maps application on my iPhone at work, it kept showing my location as the old address of the company. Hmm, that's interesting. Oh, again, listen to this carefully. This is a wonderful glitch. We moved to a new place three months ago, and this was very confusing because it was five miles from the new location where I am now. Then the iPhone got GPS, and my sig- my you know the signal came in, and the location be accurate. But for the life of me, I couldn't figure out why it would think I was at the old office. Obviously, the answer now is obvious. The wireless access points we used in the old office are now in the new office, but Skyhook's database. Still has the old location. I wonder how long they take to update their database, or does iPhone Skyhook API do it for them? Thanks, longtime listener and Spinrite faithful Ashley Black. That's really, of course, that would so happen. Is it that cool? Yeah, we talked about how the SSID and the MAC address of the of the of the hotspot, the access point, is you know was once located by Skyhook trucks driving around, and so. The, da- the, the database knows the physical location of those access points. Well, the company moved months ago. The access points are now five miles away from where they were, but Skyhook has not updated its database. So, so for, for anyone near those access points, anything, any technology, probably Google Street Maps, I would imagine, is going to be the same way. Um, street view technology, you know, anything that once roamed around the streets, logging the locations of those access points, the the device sees the access point, says, where am I? And the database says, well, you're where you were five months ago. So anyway, I thought that was just very cool. And he asked a question that was the first thing that occurred to me, which is, if the phone got access to GPS... So it knew exactly where it was. Wouldn't it make sense that that should send it back? Yes. Yeah. That it could say, "Whoops, wait a minute here. This is more than a small error." So you know, I don't know. Maybe you want to put it in pending somehow, or say, "Well, maybe it's time to roll around this area again." I don't know. You know how they handle it, but it it absolutely makes sense that GPS enabled equipment, which is also Wi-Fi enabled could be essentially doing the equivalent of what what rolling trucks around are doing, but doing it on the fly dynamically, which, wow, that'd be really cool too. 
I think there's privacy considerations that keep the iPhone from updating the Skyhook database. Uh, I would guess, right? It's the kind of thing that I could just see the headline. iPhone tells, you know, company where you are. Yep. Without your permission. So, yep. I mean, if they popped up good a point. thing that said, can we update Skyhook or something, maybe. But um, that's an interesting, I doubt, I'd be very surprised if it did, just for that reason alone. Yeah, you're right. So, for example, it could know, it, it could know that Skyhook and the GPS that the, in the phone are disagreeing substantially, pop up notice saying, right. hi, uh, you know, our geolocation data from Wi-Fi no longer matches GPS. Right. Would you mind if we update this, you know, our database in the sky? You know, right. Skynet wants to know about Skyhook. <laughs> and so I was like, uh, no. <laughs> I like you not knowing where I am. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's people are very worried about that. It, Google said, uh, this week announced an API for its latitude. If you use Google devices, uh, I don't think it works on the – yeah, I guess it does work on the iPhone – it, it it knows where you are and sends that information back to Latitude in real time. It's not even like a check-in. It's like as you move. And uh, there's an API for that now. And I think that uh, people, there are 3 million users, and I, I bet you many of them don't remember signing up and, and, and allowing mm -hmm. it. So yeah. these, this has become, you're going to see a lot more about location stuff. This is just the beginning of, of real paranoia over that. Mm. Steve, we've come to the end of our great nine questions. Yes, and a great episode. I hope everyone enjoyed it. Number 250 next week. Holy cow. Yeah. And, you know, you scared me. You said when I, when we, as we start our fifth year, but that's like three weeks off. <laughs> that's 260. <laughs> 260. It's not far. Not far. Amazing. Yep. Amazing. If you want to know more, grc.com, the Gibson Research Corporation, grc.com slash security now. You can get 16 kilobit versions of the show, the show notes, full audio quality, uh, transcripts, all the information. Steve puts it up there as a pro bono. Really appreciate you doing that, Steve. Uh, he also has a lot of great other you know things at grc.com. Spinrite, the uh, world's finest hard drive and maintenance utility. A lot of free utilities. grc.com. Steve's Twitter handle, we must not hesitate to tell. And you got to start following some people, Steve. You're still only following two people. I, I'm just nervous about so much stuff coming in. I'm actually reading everything that comes in from my own listener. If you read the followers. ad stuff, that's so. pretty good too, yeah. yeah. And if you see somebody who is really consistently giving you good information, follow them. Anyway, yeah. follow Steve, twitter.com slash SGGRC. That's easy. Steve Gibson GRC. SGGRC is his uh, Twitter handle. Steve, we'll see you next week on Security Now. Um, I did want to make a mention that since we're recording this a day late, uh, this, this collides with Elaine's own transcribing schedule. The, the block that she normally allocates, uh -oh. okay. you're not able to fill. So... Um, so transcripts may not appear, like, for example, until next Monday. But, you know, don't worry. If you don't see them, They'll then I there. will get them up as soon as, as Elaine is able to do them for us. Yeah, I should mention that we normally do this show, and you're invited to watch us do it live every Wednesday at uh, 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 1800 UTC. It's at TV. We do make the video available on iTunes and everywhere else. Podcasts are available. Probably the easiest way to find it and subscribe is to go to the Twit page, TWIT.TV slash SN. TWIT.TV slash SN. You'll see subscribe dropdowns for audio and video. Makes it very easy to uh, add us to Google, Zoom, iTunes, and everywhere else. Thanks, Steve. We'll see you next time. Thanks, Leo. Security now.